from PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. The environmental injustice of sugarcane burning. The ash, unaffectionately known as the black snow, uh, ash is just raining down upon everything in the community, your homes, your cars, your food. It's almost apocalyptic at times, especially when fields are being burnt simultaneously. The smoke can block the sun out. The community actually turns dark. It's like, wow, man, this is, this is crazy. Also, how phthalates and other chemicals can disrupt reproduction. We did a whole series of studies showing that when the mother had higher levels of those phthalates in her urine, the sons were born with genital changes. And then we showed that those changes in adults were related to sperm count. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is an encore edition of Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. Thanks to our unique geography, the United States is particularly vulnerable to nearly every kind of natural disaster. We have more tornadoes each year than any other country in the world. We are also prone to hurricanes, wildfires, and blizzards. These natural disasters are getting an unnatural boost with climate change, and the U.S. can expect to be ground zero for more destruction in the coming decades. For details, we're joined by Seth Bornstein. He's a science writer with the Climate and Environment team at the Associated Press. So what geographical features make the United States so uniquely susceptible to extreme weather? Well, you've got two oceans, the Atlantic and the Pacific, and then you have the Gulf of Mexico, which is a third coast. And then you have the Rocky Mountains right through the middle of the United States going north-south. The United States is also in the mid-latitudes where you get the difference between the cold and the polar regions and the hot in the tropics. And then you also have the jet stream, which comes whizzing through. And it's along that jet stream that's the instability. On one side of the jet stream, you have cold, and on the other side, you have hot I mean, you just look at the United States, it's almost like there's two weather patterns, one country. West is dry and getting drier, and the East is wet and getting wetter. So all of those sort of combine in different ways to cause various weather extremes. I mean, tornadoes, hurricanes, wildfires, blizzards, you get nearly every possible one in the United States And in many of them, like tornadoes, you get it far more than anywhere else. So lots of other countries will certainly have coastlines and huge mountain ranges. You know, the Himalayas or the Andes and places like Australia, they're just completely surrounded by water. So how do the weather hazards of these other countries compare to those of the United States? Well, Australia does have some of those issues. But if you think about it, much of these Change is also brewing in the center. If you have hazards in the Australian outback, it doesn't affect many people because there are few people. The other thing is the Australia, it's not quite in the same place where you have sort of the jet stream plunging through. China is another good one I kept asking when I talked to scientists in terms of comparisons. But what China has is just the one major coast, and it doesn't get the mixing or clashing of air that the U.S. gets. I mean, it's not to say that there aren't natural hazards anywhere else. It's just we get a wide variety. Well, geography handed us a combination of dangerous ingredients, but our choices are also playing a role here. How are we exacerbating the situation? The key here is these are not disasters in themselves. Meteorologists and disaster experts emphasize that all these weather extremes are hazards, but they're not disasters. What makes them disasters is the human factor. If you have a tornado ripping through the Kansas wheat fields and there's no one there and no buildings, it's not really a big deal. It's not a disaster. It is just nature. But it's when there's people and buildings in the way that it becomes a disaster. Um, We are putting people in places that are a little more dangerous. Think of all the construction along the U.S. eastern and Gulf Coast, which are hurricane-prone. People build on areas 
where they have had total losses. And then they get hurricane insurance, federally funded usually, and then they build again in the same place. And some of the scientists said, you know, we don't do building codes as well as we should. For example, in, in hurricane areas, you can buy hurricane clips, which are like $20 or so, $10 to $20. These are these metal clips you put on your roof beams to help attach and keep your roof during a hurricane. And many places don't require that. It's such a cheap thing. In Tornado Alley, you, some places cannot build basements, but basements are crucial or some kind of tornado shelter. A little bit under 50% of deaths they find in tornadoes are in mobile homes or manufactured houses. Mm. If you are going to have mobile homes, maybe mobile home parks should all come with tornado shelters for people to go to. I mean, nature has dealt us a really lousy hand in terms of geography, but then we have made it so much worse. Well, the science tells us that climate change will be making storms worse. They'll be making them more common, more intense. But how exactly will they start changing in the case of something like a tornado or a hurricane? So first, tornadoes, it's more of an issue of movement. So in the Great Plains, sort of considered Tornado Alley, computer models show tornadoes decreasing in frequency there, but dramatically increasing eastward, like Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky. And scientists have seen these trends starting to happen already. And eastward means more people, more poverty, more density, more trees, so you don't see the tornadoes coming. Like in Kansas or Oklahoma, you see them coming from miles away on the, along the prairie. You know, if it's coming through Little Rock, there are trees in the way. You don't see a storm. And the scientists have found when there's tornado warnings, one of the first things people do is they go outside to take a look to see, oh, is it dangerous looking? And then, the, and then if it looks dangerous, then they will go in the basement and take shelter. So if you can't see it because of trees and buildings, or if it's nighttime, and in the Mid-South, we're getting more tornadoes later at night, it's more dangerous. Then with hurricanes, most scientists are now saying more of the stronger hurricanes and definitely wetter hurricanes. So, you know, wetter, slower makes them more damaging. So is not quite as easy as things being worse. It's just how they're getting worse. Mm. Sometimes it feels like those of us who live in the United States are experiencing these extreme weather events, if you'll allow me to use hyperbole, every five minutes. Mm. What kind of toll do you think that has on the American people or the American psyche? I think there's all sorts of possible tolls. For a while, you would say, oh, my God, this is happening every five minutes. And then after a while, oh, it's just another tornado killing just another 10, 15 people. If there's a history in the U.S. public of, of being shocked at stuff that happens and then accepting lots of deaths as normal. School shootings, covid you know, it's, it's shocking, it's shocking, and it suddenly is part of our daily lives. And in many ways, you know, if you think about it, weather disasters have become like that. Well, what kind of progress, if any, have we made in preparing for these disasters? There are still some, some good news. For example, lightning deaths the last few years have been at record lows. It's, you know, 10, 12 deaths a year. And in the 50s and 40s, there were hundreds of deaths a year. And that's because of warning and education. And, you know, everyone now knows if there's uh, lightning, get off the golf course, get out of the water. Mm -hmm. One, people weren't educated in that before. And two, the warnings are so much better. So we're getting so much better about weather forecasts and warnings. The trouble is there's a disconnect between the warnings out there and how people receive it and what they do. And also, you know, at some point, there's some only so much you can do. 
Seth Borenstein is a science writer with the Climate and Environment team at the Associated Press. As harvest season approaches, join the Living on Earth Book Club to hear how regenerative farming can combat climate change and food scarcity. The great regeneration author Doran Cox will join us for this free event on September 14th. Tune into our live stream at 6 p.m. Eastern or join me in person at the Dover Public Library in New Hampshire. Just go to LOE.org slash events to register and learn more. Coming up, the fight for clean air and communities of color downwind from the ash and smoke from the sugarcane burning in Florida. That's just ahead on Living on Earth. If you're one of Living on Earth's listener supporters, or if you've been considering a donation to LOE, this message is for you. As a nonprofit news organization, listener support is vital to LOE's weekly effort to bring you up to date environmental news and information. Your gift to LOE makes a difference and makes our work possible. So thank you. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. And I'm Ainsley O'Neill. Sugarcane is a perennial grass that can be harvested as many as five times before being replanted. And for centuries, growers would set fields on fire to burn off the tops and leaves before harvesting the sweet cane stalks. Many modern sugar growers use mechanical harvesters to strip away those tops and leaves rather than pollute the air with ash and particulates from burning. But burning persists in Palm Beach County, Florida, where, with support from the Pulitzer Center, reporter Sandy Tolan found this cheap, old-fashioned method is imposing disproportionately high health costs on nearby communities of color. Montana traffic, white highway departing runway 10. The single-engine Cessna flies low, its shadow flitting along the edge of the Everglades. Decades ago, hundreds of square miles were dug, drained, and scraped. Then the rich muck planted in sugarcane. So what we're passing to do is called the Everglades Agricultural Area. The Atlantic Ocean sparkles in the east. Just along the shore, the mansions of the sugar barons of Palm Beach. At a thousand feet, we look down on the source of that wealth, half a million acres of sugarcane. Most of that sea of monoculture belongs to U.S. sugar and to Florida crystals, part of the Van Hool sugar empire. Our plane banks to the west. We can see Muck City, the nickname for the largely black towns of Belle Glade, Pahokee, and South Bay, also known as the Glades. I believe that is Belle Glade. I'm hoping. Allie Hartman is with Friends of the Everglades, part of a coalition of environmentalists and local Glades residents fighting the pre harvest burns. Yeah, so on the left side of the plane here, we're seeing a massive sugarcane burn that starts along that crop line there, and it will continue burning until that entire field has been burnt. Uh, what it what it does is it removes what they would call the trash material in that until only the sugarcane stalk is left. It's a cheaper method for harvest. Cheaper and dirtier. How dirty? To understand that, I get back on the ground, ride down a washboard cane road, and stop my rental car in front of the flames. It's really getting hot. From the fire comes smoke. From the smoke, ash. Tons and tons of ash. The people of Muck City told me about it. The ash, unaffectionately known as the black snow, uh, ash is just raining down upon everything in the community, your homes, your cars, your food. It's like black ash all over the place. It's like raining ash. Out of nowhere, you know, you're just sitting there, boom. Ash is on you. When you look at your clothes, hey, I got ash on my clothes. It messed up our cars. It messed up our houses. It messed up our hair. I have natural hair. And when it gets in there, it's really hard to get out. Stay inside. Keep your windows down or whatever. As much as I can try to keep him indoors and say, son, we can't go outside, 
he's a boy, you know, he wants to run and climb the trees. I'm sitting out trying to enjoy a drink, you know, my drink has ash in it. Man, I have to do something about this. You, you would think like, where is this coming from? Why is it like this? It's almost apocalyptic at times, especially when fields are being burnt simultaneously. The smoke can block the sun out. The community actually turns dark. It's like, wow, man, this is, this is crazy. It would be crazy just about anywhere else, but the three towns that make up Muck City are company towns. Florida Crystals and U.S. Sugar-sponsored Little Leagues, scholarship programs. They helped pay for a couple of local parks and a community center. But all that comes with a message. Don't mess with the burns. Just live with the ash. You know, we felt like, okay, this is just normal. This is what we've been seeing all our life. This is community activist Kena Phillips of South Bay. You really didn't think, like, why all these people got asthma like this? Why is this happening? Like, you just don't think about it. But then Kena Phillips had a grandson. When my grandbaby was born, we noticed that when we take him outside, and because it was the burning season, he struggled to breathe. We got to the point where we had to put him on a machine. She worked in a hospital and had already started noticing something. Witnessing the increase of people coming in and having to be put on the asthma um, machine. Or we having to call the ambulance for them to send them to the emergency room because of the shortness of breath and respiratory problems. But when all of these things start happening at one time, you're like, wait, hold on, there's a problem here. So Kena Phillips, working with the former mayor of South Bay, called in the Sierra Club. The Stop the Burn campaign was born. We came on board and refused to be quiet about it. Then their colleague Robert Mitchell formed the Muck City chapter of Black Lives Matter. Ms. Phillips says this is an environmental justice issue. It's racism. Soon after, they called on Colin Walks, then the mayor of Pahokee. The Glades welcomed my family from the island of Barbados. I migrated here in 1982 with my mom, dad, sister, and brothers. Colin Walks sits in a city park in Pahokee, the waves of Lake Okeechobee lapping the shore. He was 10 years old when his family moved to Muck City. After Pahokee High, Colin Walks moved away for a while, joined the Army, got his bachelor's in criminal justice, became a probation officer. And then about 12 years ago, he came back with his own family. One of the reasons I got involved, too, I have a young son that uh, is asthmatic, and since he's been here, he, he's had about maybe eight or nine asthma attacks. It happens during uh, the Christmas break, you know, during uh, Thanksgiving. In other words, when the burns were going on, he began to worry about those burns. Then he ran for mayor of Pahokee and won. He met with Kena Phillips and joined the Stop the Burn campaign. When I was in office, of course, I spoke out against the industry. Uh, and I don't really call it uh, speaking out. I, I, I called it an ask to uh, uh, basically stop the practice of, of sugarcane burning. And adopt safer, cleaner, green sugar harvesting with no burning. In Brazil and Australia, studies indicate green harvesting reduces soil erosion and conserves water. But Mayor Walk soon realized that he and Kena Phillips and a handful of other activists were in a pretty small minority. And that had consequences. Speaking out uh, against our industry as far as the practice of sugarcane burning, is kind of like a death sentence here in the community when it comes to your livelihood. When Colin Walks ran for re-election, he lost. And then he lost a lot more. The most extreme thing that happened to me was uh, happened in 2021, where I was actually fired from my job. It was his full-time job in community engagement for a local nonprofit. When he engaged citizens on public health and sugarcane burning, he said powerful people complained, and he was out. And it really rocked me. You know, you have a daughter in college, you know, uh, two young uh, sons in the home, a wife. You got a mortgage, uh, uh, car notes and all these type things. I actually lost my home, you know. You have kids, you know, my boys, oh, we got track meets coming up, Dad. Oh, we got this with the band, you know. We got this with robotics. So it's a tough situation to be in when you have to tell your kid, uh, 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 well, uh, it's not going to be able to make the meat because of basics like gas. You can see the disappointment in your kid's face. Oh, dad, man, I thought you was going to make it to it. For about a month, we were actually homeless. I actually slept in the park for two nights here in Pahokee. Yeah, you know, we lived in the, in the homeless shelter for about, about a week, a week and a half. You know, uh, my kids were staying with my mom, but we were in the, in the homeless shelter. 
The former mayor had to think fast. He put the family's savings into a gigantic charcoal smoker and food trailer. This is a firebox. Now Cole Brothers Cuisine began showing up at Little League and high school football games on the weekends. And this is uh, all indirect heating. And Colin Walks kept speaking out against the burns. The campaign wants this year to be the last burn season. And so how unsafe are the burns, really? You hear a lot of stories about asthma attacks, more nebulizers in use, strange rashes, even people moving away entirely to get out from under the black snow. There's a whole lot of anecdotal evidence of health problems, and not just from the Stop the Burn folks. There's not much official interest in Muck City for in-depth health investigations. Internal studies by the Palm Beach County Health Department did link cane burning to toxic pollution and potential respiratory and carcinogenic effects. That's according to an investigation by ProPublica and the Palm Beach Post. Publicly, though, a state official said there was no such proven link. And the many pro-sugar people here say critics are hyping the dangers without enough evidence. I'm Tammy Jackson-Moore. I've been in the Glades about 30 years, raised my children here. Ms. Jackson-Moore is co-founder of Guardians of the Glades, a community group aligned with the big sugar companies. She says the ash doesn't rain down every day during the burning season, and when it does... I get up and I sweep my porch, and I go on about my day. I have never had an asthma attack since I moved here to this community. But I had terrible asthma up in Jacksonville. Do people have asthma in our community? Absolutely. Can we equate their asthma to sugarcane burning? I don't think so. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a scientist. I don't think it's equated. There may be something that helps to trigger their asthma during the burning season, but that something may be what's growing here. It could be some of the flowers. It could be anything. But to say that it's because of sugarcane burning, and lay it all on sugarcane burning, I think that's unfair. You may be wondering what Big Sugar is saying. To me, very little. I called, texted, emailed dozens of times. Finally, someone called back saying, we're not going to meet with you. A PR person for the Von Hool's Florida Crystals wrote to say that because of previous stories they called unfair and inaccurate, they'd agree to an interview only if it were live on the air and unedited which rules out this and just about any other radio program or podcast, so kind of unrealistic. Florida Crystals did send a statement signed by their vice president. He spent three pages describing their charitable work and education, sponsoring the Muck City Hall of Fame, providing sugar and rice during COVID and other efforts. About the burns, this, read by my colleague. Pre-harvest sugarcane prescribed burns are closely regulated and permitted on a daily field-by-field basis by Florida Forest Service. Before authorizing or denying a permit, the state agency uses state-of-the-art computer modeling with real-time information about atmospheric and meteorological conditions. Air quality monitoring and data show that the area where the sugarcane is farmed has some of the best air quality in the state of Florida, better than the state average year after year. Just a note, we did edit the company's statement. Reading it out loud at a normal pace, it took me 13 minutes, almost as long as this entire story. But what about that air quality claim? Is the air quality around the cane and in Muck City actually better than the rest of Florida? Well... To begin with, we know that the amount of particulate matter pollution produced annually by pre-harvest sugar field burning during the harvesting season is roughly equivalent to the amount of uh, particulate matter pollution produced by automobile vehicles throughout the state of Florida per year. That's the Sierra Club's Patrick Ferguson, an organizer and attorney who set up shop in a storefront in Belle Glade to work with Kena Phillips, Colin Walks, and other local campaign leaders. He points to studies in peer-reviewed journals linking cane burning to high concentrations of particulate matter and to release of carcinogenic chemicals like benzene and formaldehyde. Bottom line, Ferguson says? The issue of sugarcane burning is a serious public health problem. In late 2021, a joint study by Stanford University and NPR found that some of the worst air in the U.S. is in Florida's sugarcane plantations. So, wait... 
how could the area have both the cleanest air in the state and the worst air in the country? Some say it all comes down to air quality monitors, where they're located, how often they sample, and simply how many there are. Federal air quality monitors that are used to determine compliance with national ambient air quality standards are generally determined by population densities. And since there just aren't that many people in the glades, far fewer monitors. So reporters for ProPublica and the Palm Beach Post set up their own air sensors to register particulate matter and documented big spikes in pollution during the burns. Spikes that the other monitors seemed to miss, says Patrick Ferguson. And uh, on days when there were spikes of particulate matter pollution, it was when sugarcane burning was blowing in the directions of some of these monitors. Now, Big Sugar disputes this. The companies accused ProPublica of selectively presenting their preferred interpretation in support of a biased conclusion, even suggested they were collaborating with environmental activists. Charges the journalists refuted. A new study raises some troubling concerns about the air quality in western parts of Palm Beach County. CBS 12's Al Pefley reports the study looked at the results of sugarcane burning. But then late last summer, a peer-reviewed study said particulate matter from the burns contributed to between two and three additional deaths per year across South Florida. It made the evening news. Researchers at Florida State University looked at information from an atmospheric dispersion model. In the Glades, U.S. Sugar issued a statement. Saying the FSU study is based on estimates and conjecture. Quote, shame on Florida State University for letting its good name be associated with such shoddy work. But no matter how good the air really is, no matter how harmful the ash and smoke, there's one question the pro-sugar folks could never seem to answer. Why do state officials allow the burns when the ash falls on communities of color in Muck City, and yet they ban the burns when the wind blows east toward majority white communities, the stables and equestrian riding clubs of Wellington, and the Fonhul mansions in Palm Beach? Sounds hard to believe, right? But documents from a public records request to the Florida Department of Agriculture show it's a fact. I wanted someone from the sugar industry willing to face my microphone. For a long time, I couldn't find anyone. We understand and greet everyone, look around. And then, one day, of all places in church, I found him. God bless you. It's so good to see everyone here this morning. I've come to talk to Reverend Robert Reese, a pro-sugar pastor. Come up and greet the congregation. But, surprise, here in the Lord's house, there's State Representative Rick Roth, a politician, and a sugar grower. Good morning, everyone. Good morning. It's a good day to be in the house of the Lord. Praise God. He's hawking votes two days before the, the election. My heart is in the glades. I've got muck underneath my toes. Thank God I am here today. I ask for your support. We need people that fear God to run for public office. Please, I'm asking for your vote. Now, Rick Roth slips out the back door, and a little rudely, I suppose, so do I. He's a bit surprised to see me, but he agrees to talk, and he insists there's nothing dangerous in the ash. Well, it's funny. We've been doing cane burning ever since the industry really got going in the early 1960s. We have air quality monitoring. We have regulations. Burning is not dangerous to your health unless you're standing out in it and trying to breathe it. Um, it's not an air quality issue. I don't think it's a health issue. I want, I want to ask you one more question. This burning question, if everything is so safe, why let the black snow fall on Muck City, but then when the wind blows east toward those wealthier communities, pull the permits? And a lot of people feel like that's not fair. The city's had nothing to do with that. This is a Florida regulation. Well, what do you think about that? I mean, they're like... Well, the, is the issue is you always have to make decisions. Uh, this is not a hazard. It is obviously an agenda. Right, but why would... Why I'm would saying it it's an agenda. It's not an issue. No, but I'm asking you, what about when the wind shifts and, then, and they pull the permits? The, the regulations are, are done to do the least amount of harm possible. There is no data, no scientific data, to my knowledge, 
But you've asked four questions on this issue like it's important as the economy, and it's not. Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world. Red and yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. In Muck City, right up there with church, is football. This place has produced some 60 NFL players over the years, and no event pulls together the community, sugar boosters and burn critics alike, than the annual Muck Bowl game between Belle Glade and Pahokee High Schools. It's Florida's Friday Night Lights, and it's where I find Belle Glade Mayor Steve Wilson just before kickoff. We support our industry 100%. We make that clear with everybody. Mayor Wilson gets pretty annoyed when he talks about the Stop the Burn campaign. I've been here practically all my life. I was born in the city of Belle Glade. I have grandkids here. My, my kids are here. Do you really believe that I will expose my kids to an environment that's going to really be hazard to kill them? I have to be crazy. I love my family more than anything in this world. So all the critics and the naysayers, those folks who always got something to say, you know what? It's a part of life. We move on. We do want to make sure we give recognition to Florida Crystal. Let's give it up to all of our large donors. Just before halftime, I find the former mayor of Pahokee and now barbecue maestro Colin Walks. Today, his alma mater is already ahead by three touchdowns, and the former Pahokee High linebacker is serving up ribs. Nothing ever replaces the experience of the muck bowl. You, you never forget it. It's like it's, it's constantly playing in your head. You know, I can I can visualize my last uh, muck bowl from 1991. You know, it's, it's, you replay it in your head, you know, all the tackles, all the plays. Unlike Mayor Wilson, Mayor Walks took on the sugar companies. After losing two jobs, losing his home, he had to reinvent himself with his Cole brother's smoked meat. My love and passion for cooking come from my mom and dad, you know, uh, again from Barbados. So, you know, my food has kind of a, a Caribbean taste to it. I get chicken on a stick, tasty and a little bit sweet. Colin Walks says... It's all good. Never in a million years would I thought I would have been in a situation like that. It cost me a, a lot, but we're rebuilding, and I thank God for his grace and mercy once again, you know, for a sound mind and spirit and soul and a clean heart, you know, that you can rebuild. This is a story of redemption, you know? Yeah, because I'm, I'm happy. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy, so. And one thing that would make him even happier, if this year, out on those hundreds of thousands of acres of cane fields, it's the very last season of the burning. For Living on Earth, this is Sandy Tolan in Palm Beach County, Florida. That's what we do! That's what we do! Support for Sandy's story came from the Pulitzer Center for Crisis Reporting. leading expert talks about why we're faced with a fertility crisis and how we can protect ourselves. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. Here at Living on Earth, we work hard each and every week to bring you the most relevant and compelling environmental news. As a nonprofit organization, we count on you to help. Listener support is key to sustaining the environmental news gathering and reporting that you rely on. Please consider doing your part to support Living on Earth. A monthly donation is the very best way to ensure LOE's work continues week after week. To make your pledge of support, go to LOE.org and click Donate. And thank you for helping to keep LOE's nonprofit environmental media going strong.
It's Living on Earth. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Phthalates are a common ingredient in plastic and many other products, including flooring and nonstick cookware. This class of chemicals can mimic or interfere with hormone systems, and research is linking them to the decline in male fertility, including lower sperm counts and poor quality. Female fertility is also declining. Women today have a harder time conceiving than previous generations. The nation of polluting ourselves into a fertility crisis is exactly the premise of Margaret Atwood's novel, The Handmaid's Tale. Made into a TV series, The Handmaid's Tale is about a dystopian world in which the very few fertile women left are forced to bear children for the ruling class of a religious totalitarian government. Fertility is a gift directly from God. He left you intact for a biblical purpose, like Bela served Rachel. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful and their barren wives. You will bear children for them. Oh, you are so lucky! Shauna Swan is a professor of environmental medicine and public health at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and author of the book Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. And she joins me now. Welcome back to Living on Earth, Dr. Swan. Thank you, Steve. Really happy to be here and talk to you again. So let's talk first about the behavioral part about this. What are things that we do to reduce our sperm counts in terms of our diet and habits? Well, some of them are pretty obvious. They're things that we worry about for our heart health and overall health, like smoking. So smoking is very strongly related to sperm count. And what people might not know is that the mother smoking and even the father smoking at the time he conceives the pregnancy can affect the semen quality in the son that was being conceived at that time. So smoking is the big actor. Extreme alcohol binge drinking is really bad for sperm count. And then diet matters, as do the organic nature of the fruits and vegetables that you're eating. So we showed that when people ate organic fruits and vegetables, the men's sperm count increased. But when the fruits and vegetables were not organic, we didn't see that. Stress is important, the stress of daily life. We found that the number of life events that a man has in his daily life affects his sperm count. And so pretty much everything in our lives that we experience plays a role in our health and particularly in sperm count. And what about the chemicals? What is that doing? What's the relationship between chemicals and this more than 50% decline in, in the sperm count in the last 40 years? We know something about several classes of chemicals, but we know much less than we should. So I've studied the role of pesticides. So pesticides, we've shown, are directly related to the sperm count, morphology, and motility of sperm. And we showed that in a study where men in rural Missouri, where there was a lot of pesticides, had only half as many moving sperm as men in Minneapolis, where there's very low pesticide use. And within Missouri men, the amount of pesticide in their urine was directly related to their semen quality. So that was a pretty clear picture. We've also seen that phthalates, which are everyday chemicals, in our daily lives, make plastic soft and flexible, in our personal care products and so on, that those chemicals, which can lower testosterone, are very important for male reproductive development, particularly when the male is in utero. And we did a whole series of studies showing that when the mother had higher levels of those phthalates in her urine, the sons were born with genital changes which add up to them being less completely masculinized. And then we showed that those changes in adults were related to sperm count. So we made a link from an utero exposure to adult sperm function. But there are other classes of chemicals that matter, the bisphenols, the PFOAs, and so on. And we are just attacking those because each investigation takes millions of dollars and 10, 15 years. So it's a slow process, and this should be cleared up before the chemicals go into the marketplace. Now, 
Let's talk a little bit more about women. You write that women are now less fertile at a young age than their grandmothers once they hit 35. So that means that just within these last couple of generations, two or three generations, the fertility of women has fallen dramatically. What do you think are the main issues women are experiencing when they're trying to have a baby? Aside from, of course, the issue of the quality of of semen, of sperm that they might be getting for this process. Right. Well, I think the first thing we have to consider and acknowledge is the role of age. So women's fertility and the number of eggs she has available and the number of good eggs she has available drops off rapidly once she passes about 32, 34 years of age. And because couples are choosing for economic and other reasons to delay their first child, this pushing women into this area, this age range at which they're going to have more problems, they're going to have more miscarriage. That said, what the thing you quoted from our book, which is that women in their 20s have less fertility than their grandmothers did in their 30s, that is also going on. And that's saying that even young women are having problems. And that's not an aging problem. And I wanted to point out that a mother's exposure affects her offspring's reproductive health. And inside that fetus are the germ cells that will produce the next generation's children. But the point here is that if we are protecting ourselves particularly if we're pregnant or for men who are about to conceive a pregnancy, they would be protecting at least three generations. So we have a big responsibility. The good news, Steve, which I learned only recently from Pat Hunt at the University of Washington, she showed that in animals in the laboratory, you can take a male who's been exposed and has severe reproductive problems his offspring and his offspring's offspring, if they are kept clean, kept unexposed to these chemicals, in three generations, they can recover their reproductive health. And that's kind of encouraging because these chemicals are not persistent, most of them, the ones we're exposed to today. Some like the PFAS are more persistent, but we're not looking at the old DDT and dioxin and PCBs, of which were banned a long time ago, those very long life chemicals. But phthalates and phenols leave the body in four to six hours. So if we can stop them from coming in, we can clean up our mess. Part of the response to the fertility decline, and perhaps it might be fair to say even we're looking at a fertility crisis, although it seems silent at the moment, is that uh, some folks will use reproductive tech. I'm thinking of in vitro fertilization, for one. But, you know, the cost of that is in five figures. You're talking $10,000, $20,000, perhaps more. And repeat that a few times, that becomes a piece of change. Or hiring a surrogate to have one's child. So, in other words, not everyone can afford that. This sounds to me like a case also of environmental injustice, that reproductive rights for poor and underserved communities are affected by the inability to to use this technology. That is correct. And I wanted to also add that disadvantaged communities we're seeing are actually more affected by these chemicals. I'll give you an example. We have a study in four cities in the United States. One of those studies is Rochester. In Rochester, the study center is mostly Medicare, mostly African-American, and they are having higher exposures, we're seeing, and the effect of those exposures, even at the same level, are greater than in the other three centers, which are primarily middle-class, primarily white, and have lower exposures. So again, three ways in which this is an unjust (laughs) impact, greater exposure, to disadvantaged communities, greater impact of a given exposure, and less opportunity to buy your way out of it, whether it's through assisted reproduction or safer foods or safer you know, personal care products. So what can people do in light of this knowledge? What can people do to lessen their exposure, for example, to endocrine disruptive chemicals that, that might affect their ability to reproduce? So that's an important question, and it's something that we spend several chapters on in Countdown, our book. This is quite a big story, but I'll try to say a few things that people could do. 
So first of all, I want to preface this by saying the things that people can do may be limited by their economic status. So food access, ability to afford organic foods, ability to afford personal care products that are cleaner and safer, even having the time to go to the web to look up these products assumes a certain amount of free time and an economic status and an education that not everybody has. So there is an environmental justice issue connected to this question of what can people do? And I want to stress that. Um, okay, so what can people do? Well, I recommend that people, to the extent they can, eat unprocessed food. And that's because the processing of food, once it's collected at maybe even an organic farm, will introduce chemicals like phthalates and the bisphenols into the food. And we know that because we know that when food goes through plastic tubing, which is soft, it picks up the phthalates from the tubing, enters the food, gets into us, gets into our urine, the CDC can measure it. And that's been shown in many settings, including for babies in the NICU. So unprocessed food that doesn't go through plastic, isn't packaged in plastic, isn't shipped in plastic, and certainly is not heated in plastic, will be much safer for you. Another thing you can do is try to worry about the things in your home that I like to think of as barriers. So a nonstick pan has a coating on it, a Teflon pan has a coating on it, right, to keep the food from sticking. That is an endocrine disrupting chemical. It's one of the PFAS chemicals. The barriers on our clothing that keep off liquids, uh, rain, are that's a barrier that is in that same class of chemicals. Barriers on paper to prevent oil from leaking through, like in a pizza box, that will have those chemicals. Then you might ask about the things in their home that are flame retardant. So flame retardant clothing, flame retardant cushions, flame retardant you know, upholstery of various kinds. These are endocrine disrupting chemicals. So basically, I think we have to have a lens that we put on everything we bring into our bodies and into our lives and use that lens to ask what is in it or what could be in it. Try to read labels, try to look up information on the web. It's a hard job. And I should say that the consumer should not have to do this. It's not really what we're good at, is it? We expect the government to protect us, to keep us safe, but they are not doing that as far as these chemicals are concerned. So, you know, around 30 years ago, when scientists began sounding the alarm about climate disruption, saying that our activity as humans was dangerously altering the environment, people, a lot of people were in denial. And it became an issue between believers in climate change and, and non-believers. And we've been talking about the effects of the chemicals that they have on our reproductive health for a long time as well, without a lot of response from society, frankly, up until this point. What relationship, in your, in your view, is there between climate change and reproductive health? Well, first of all, the analogy you're making, I think, is a really good one, and it's one that I make myself. I see the same story with this sperm decline and fertility decline. It was touted in 1992 originally, that's quite a while ago, getting on close to 30 years. And when it first came out, it was not listened to, it was denied. And now with the book and our tying this all together and identifying environmental causes and their own experience of infertility in themselves or in their friends or in their families, they're seeing, wow, this is something that we have to pay attention to. We have to do something about this. So, but more directly, Steve, the tie-in between environmental endocrine disruptors and fossil fuels is very direct because many of these, if not most of these chemicals are made from fossil fuel byproducts. And in fact, the predictions are that as the use of fossil fuels for driving our cars and heating our homes is going to go down, which is a great thing, there are going to be an increase in the number of plastics on the market, which will make use of those resources, which could go anymore into heating our homes and driving our cars. You know, we're not the only creatures on the planet, right? So what effect do you think the decline in fertility we're seeing in our species is reflected what might be going on with animals and insects? 
I believe that the same chemicals that affect us affect all creatures on the planet, at least those that are responsive to hormone regulation of reproduction. And there was recently a study that showed that dogs, people's pet dogs, were affected by the chemicals in their homes and the fertility of those dogs was affected. We see wildlife, the effects on alligators and frogs and fish and birds, and there's no end to it. Whenever scientists look for declining species, they can identify these chemicals in the bodies of these animals. And by the way, these endocrine disrupting chemicals are found everywhere. It's not just in busy cities. It's not just in industrialized areas. They're found at the bottom of the Marianas Trench and they're found at the Arctic Circle. There's no limit to where these go. And so there's no limit to the animals that are affected. So we're all in this together. Shana Swan's book is called Countdown, How Our Modern World is Threatening Sperm Counts, Altering Male and Female Reproductive Development, and Imperiling the Future of the Human Race. Dr. Swan, thanks so much for taking the time with us today. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you, Steve. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Paloma Beltran, Josh Kroom, Jenny Doring, Squayam Gagneja, Madison Goldberg, Mark Kausch, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Sarah Mahaney, Sophia Pandelitis, Claire Shanahan, Jake Rigo, L. Wilson, and Yolanda Omari. Tom Tiger engineered our show. Allison Lierstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. We tweet from at Living on Earth. And find us on Instagram at Living on Earth Radio. And you can write to us at comments at LOE.org. I'm Ainsley O'Neill. And I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.